This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Well, there is an expectation that we could be looking at a another superbug coming in the future. It's because of a recent case here in Pennsylvania of a woman being infected by E. coli and the fact that it was resistant to the antibiotic that was attempted to use, colistin. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, who is the chair of the Medical Ethics and Health Policy Department here at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote recently in the Washington Post the need for a couple of things to try and prevent this possible superbug. And Dr. Emanuel joins us here in the studio. Great to have you here. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, we were just talking before th- th- that we went on the air. This case, obviously, in Pennsylvania, bringing uh, more light to it. But in terms of the severity of it right now or I- in the near future, where does that kind of sit? Well, in the case of this Pennsylvania woman, uh, she had uh, a gene that made her uh, E. coli resistant to this uh, colistin, the antibiotic of last resort. And so in that context, this was new, newly found in human beings in the United States, a, a serious problem. But the bacteria she had was still resistant to at least one an- antibiotic, the carbapenem and, uh, family of antibiotics. So we didn't have all the genes lined up in okay. one bacteria. What worries public health officials and uh, all the medical people is when you get all those genes lined up in one bacteria mm-hmm. and they're resistant to colistin and carbapenems, then you really do have the superbug that everyone's worried about because there's not another antibiotic that will actually fight this infection and we'll basically have thrown ourselves back into the uh, 19th century (laughs) where we didn't have antibiotics for bacteria and people died of these bacterial infections quite commonly. And that's the horror scenario that people are worried about. Is that going to happen tomorrow? Uh, No, but is is it... you know, almost inevitably going to happen in the next few years, call it, you know, six months to five years. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what's worrying everyone. The percentage of all of those genes kind of lining up and the bacteria lining up, uh, percentage wise, what, what... You're, you're, I, I don't know. I can't quantify, yeah. you know, what the modeling shows. Right, I'm not right. a modeler. Right. Uh, but the fact that all those genes are circulating out there uh, does mean it's almost inevitably going to happen at some point. Right. And then, you know, what we have is is no antibiotics and isolation and uh, very good infection control procedures, but that's very different than having an antibiotic that can fight the infection. And that's, I think, what worries people. It really is going to be, you know, back to the future. Which gets into, I think, part of one of the main themes of the article you did in the Washington Post recently is the fact that uh, the medical community and maybe even the government to some some level need to really consider what those next antibiotics are going to be to be able to fight things like this. So we really have to attack these problems at two levels. One is to try to prevent uh, bacteria from becoming antibiotic resistance by using our ba- antibiotics much, much more wisely than we yep. have over the last 50 years. And the second is we really do have to develop a lot of new antibiotics. And by the way, it's not just for a short period. We don't have to go into, you know, a uh, sprint mode. We got to do it. For, uh, this is a long-term problem. Antibiotics yeah. are, co- I mean, anti- uh, bacteria are constantly evolving. They will constantly evolve. We'll get an antibiotic. They'll find a way to be resistant. We're going to have to get more antibiotics. So this is a, you know, it's a marathon for the rest of human existence to try to find more and more antibiotics. So that's the issue. The first part, doctors have been, I would say, uh, not 
as responsible as we should be on the use of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. We often uh, use the wrong antibiotics. We use them in cases that are viral infections, totally unnecessary, mm-hmm. or in the cases of self-limited bacterial infections. We know from research by the CDC as well as others that uh, somewhere between 20 and 50% of antibiotic prescriptions, both in the hospital and uh, in the outpatient setting, are either inappropriate or unnecessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association that showed one-third of uh, antibiotic prescriptions out of physicians' offices were uh, inappropriate or unnecessary. One-third. Wow, that's, that's, that's a out, lot. Exactly. That's it should lot. be shocking. So what, what then? What is your expectation, or, or what would you like to see happen to try and alleviate some of this unnecessary diagnosing of use uh, of antibiotics in a lot of these cases with the doctors? How do you, how do you kind of police that? I All guess right. is the best way. It's easier to police in a hospital because it's a confined area, and you really do have control over all those prescriptions much right. more directly. Right. And the CDC has developed this sort of antibiotic stewardship program. Uh, that starts with leadership in the hospital as well as uh-huh. appointing someone, a pharmacist usually, to be the point person to oversee this. It develops data and gives the data back to physicians about their own antibiotic prescription use, uh-huh. the resistance that they're developing, um, and even restricts uh, ha- and has someone independent review every antibiotic prescription. So those processes are uh, well-defined, can be implemented by every hospital. How prevalent are they, though, right now? Uh, Actually, I don't know the percentage of hospitals that have adopted them, Uh, and that actually goes to the heart of my suggestion in uh, the Washington Post article I wrote, which is, look, we just have to make them mandatory. Sure. There is an easy way for the government to make them mandatory. Government has rules called uh, um, the requirements for participation in Medicare. If you're going to be a hospital, you're going to get Medicare payment. Here are certain things you have to do. Sure. Well, this could be one of them. Antibiotic. Uh, stewardship procedures have to be implemented in your hospital, and you have to report the results back to Medicare every year. It seems to me that's actually something we ought to do. Mm-hmm. It's good for patients, it's good for the community, and it saves hospitals money, which means it saves all of us money. So I think that's actually one of the things the government could do, and, and I've urged them uh, to do. I was going to say, it's it's almost a little bit like a job review for for the doctors themselves, who obviously a lot of doctors are so busy and going you know from patient to patient, they probably don't think about it a lot. But if you see it in paper, the percentages of times that you are actually diagnosing antibiotics, you can see it really firsthand so whether I, there's a problem or not. I, I totally agree with you, and I think it actually uh, uses the principles of behavioral economics uh, to help doctors. It provides them with immediate information feedback, yep. and typically, if you rank them or show them how they compare to their peers in this uh, uh, situation, yep. you will get the bottom uh, improving, and that's really what we want to uh, have happened. But you say that, that and now is as good a time as ever to try and do something like that and even advance what we're, what we have already because of the fact that we've made the switch. Doctors, the medical community have made the switch to digital records. And so the, from the digital perspective, it's a lot easier. It's right there on the computer right. or it's right there on the server, wherever it needs to be. Hospitals have electronic uh, uh, order entry. And so when docs Uh, electronically write a prescription, it can be automatically reviewed. But I think we need to not just do it in the hospital. We have to do it in the outpatient setting also because, as I mentioned, you know, the most recent study shows that a third of those prescriptions are unnecessary or inappropriate. And so 
having the every prescription reviewed electronically. That doesn't mean that there aren't good cases that yeah. can be overridden, but we do have to have a situation where, uh, uh, you know, to put it bl- bluntly, we can't trust every prescription written that it's appropriate and necessary. The data suggests that's false, and it's a false at a sufficiently high rate. To protect the community, we need to intervene and have a check on all those antibiotic prescriptions. Many of them, you know, I got a runny nose. I've got a sore throat. (laughs) It hasn't gotten better in two days. Doctor, can you write me a prescription? Well, 99 or whatever, a high percentage of those are viral cases. They ought not to get a prescription, and yet doctors write. And then patients, you know, go ahead and they take only some of the antibiotics because by day four or five, they're feeling better. Right. Why finish the antibiotics? I, I, I've always been somebody when I have a runny nose or especially when I have a sore throat, just give me a gallon of orange juice and I suck that right down and I feel great in a few hours. Well, but I, that's me. <laughs> but it, it ought to be everyone because right, right. taking, first of all, we have increasingly good evidence that taking antibiotics is probably, you know, when necessary, perfect. But yeah. when that, not necessary, not good for the microbiome of the gut and many other things. And so uh, we just all of us, the public as well as the medical community, need to be much more prudent about using antibiotics. We're talking with Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel of the University of Pennsylvania. He's the chair of the Medical Ethics and Health Policy Department. Uh, we're talking about the potential of a superbug in the uh, in the next few years and how to kind of try and uh, get ahead of it if we possibly can. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. One of the other interesting things you talked about, and it gets back more to the business end of it, is that you talked about the price of antibiotics and why the pricing of the antibiotics right now is a reason why we aren't seeing development of new antibiotics at this point. Yes. I mean, I think if you're uh, a drug company executive, and you look at you know where you could spend your research and development doctor dollars. Some of them obviously are historical. You've got strengths in say vaccines, or you've got sure. strengths in yeah. cancer, and you're going to use those strengths. But some of them are clearly market driven by how much money uh, can you earn from the research and development. On yeah. average, it costs about uh, between five hundred million and a billion dollars to bring a drug to market. Yeah. Uh, uh, including failures. Um, now, if you can earn, say, $5,000 for an antibiotic, uh, or you could earn 100000 or $150,000 for an anti-cancer drug or you know, some drug for multiple sclerosis, you, know, you don't have to be a genius to say, well, uh, it's going to be a lot easier to do the cancer, or it's a lot more lucrative to do the cancer drug. Sure, yeah. If the development costs are similar, I'd rather do the cancer drug, especially if what you're developing is the last resort antibiotic, which everyone's going to use rarely. Yeah, yeah. Your returns on investment are going to be really low. And so I think that is a situation um, where low prices of drugs, ironically enough, are actually inhibiting the development of drugs. We all want lower pricing for our drugs, but this is a situation where comparative low pricing is actually inhibiting the development. And I know, you know, I, I can't figure out personally, all right, I take an antibiotic, it's going to save my life. Right. I take an anti-cancer drug, it's going to give me six, eight months maximum. Sure, yeah. yeah. And yet I'm willing to pay $100,000 for those six or eight months, but yeah. I'm not willing to pay $100,000 or yep. 50000 or some large number <clears throat> for that antibiotic. It makes no sense uh, to me in terms of how much do I value my life, but that actually is the behavior we see out in the marketplace. And, and it's, a tough, it's a tough conversation not only for that person to deal with, but the family members as well, because that's, that's kind Correct. of a dynamic in, in that process as well. You also laid out in the, in the article that you did not only just the cost of them, but right now, the numbers of, of drugs that are in development 
is piddling. It's, piddling. it's what, like 30-fold more so, for like cancer drugs right. compared to antibiotics So it's right about now. 836 cancer drugs are in human trials. That means they're in safety or, or efficacy trials, and 37 uh, antibiotics. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's a joke, and it's terrible. Uh, we need hundreds of antibiotics in development. Not all of them are going to make it through. Yeah. So you need to start that pipeline and have a very, very robust pipeline. And that's just not happening. Outside of the government coming in and saying, uh, listen, in, in order to do this, uh, you know, to be part of Medicare, you need to do this. What other role can the government play in this whole process? Well, I've suggested that we try to move off the marketplace model for antibiotic development, it, it clearly doesn't work. And we try to go to a prize model yeah. uh, where uh, the United States government gets together with uh, governments from a bunch of other developing country, developed countries like Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, uh, the European Union, Canada. Put it, put it all and, under one roof, basically. And look, let's all contribute uh, yeah. you know, in proportion to our population or, you know, some formula yeah. and let's create prizes. And I suggested $2 billion, which is, you know, if it takes a billion to develop a drug, $2 billion is a big return on that sure. development. And then <clears throat> it's a collective good and we can use them sparingly. We can decide how to charge for them. Uh, but I think that's a really important, different approach. Now, is it going to work? Well, I know one thing, the current approach is not working yeah. and we are all a threat because it's not working. I two billion dollars, you know, might sound like a lot of money to uh, the listeners, but let's put it in context. Twenty billion dollars is what we spend in the United States alone on uh, treating per year on treating antibiotic resistant infections. So two billion dollars is just ten percent of that. And if we get all these countries together. Uh, and contribute, the actual price tag is pretty low. Well, and the amazing thing is that's uh, uh, you know so many of these drug companies right now, two billion dollars to them, well, it's one month profit. Well, you, you know, but they're it, not spend, they're not going to spend it on right. developing antibiotics when they're not going to make the money back. Right. No, I'm just saying in in, in perspective, you know, two billion dollars is not a lot of money when you think about. Oh, to you know, incentivize them? Exactly. I actually think it would incentivize a lot of them. For I mean, money is the one thing, okay. but. Winning a big prize and the bragging rights that come with winning that big prize. Uh, and we've also – I've suggested other bonuses. You've got a totally new class of antibiotics. That gets another $2 billion. Right. You develop uh, an antibiotic that fights one of the CDC's most urgent uh, needs uh, that they've identified. You get another $2 billion. So I think there are ways that you could really actually supercharge this. And I do think it's really uh, – we need a different model. And also, I mean, I think – you know, I'm not the first person to think about prizes. Right. right. Uh, we ha in history, we have a lot of good examples. Napoleon wanted food preserved for his soldiers. <laughs> he put out a prize. Yeah. Got someone who you know figured out how to sterilize in a in that case it was a glass jar uh, to preserve meats and things, vegetables. Um, we know that Netflix offered a prize. Got lots of people who weren't actually in the field to begin participating uh, in that developing algorithms. Yeah. I think we need to be creative. 844-942-7866 is the number. If you'd like to jump in and ask a question, we're joined by Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, the University of Pennsylvania, here in the studio. We're talking about uh, the potential of a superbug and how you kind of go about uh, kind of potentially fighting that for the future. Brenda joins us from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Brenda, welcome. Thanks. Love the show. We're an entrepreneur here in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and we have a health food store. 
So we often see people coming in with these microbiome issues, a lot of gut disturbance, and we agree wholeheartedly that antibiotics are very overprescribed. But another issue I'd love for you guys to address is the topical application. So many people are getting overexposed to antibiotics to their household cleaners and hand washes. I'll tell you, after reading the research on the cellular effect of topical antibiotics, it's just astounding to me that we're not being more progressive in getting rid of these in our environment. Okay. Well, first of all, most of those hand sanitizers, the Purells of this world, don't use antibiotics. Um, they use a alcohol uh, kind of compound. Um, uh, so uh, they are uh, now become ubiquitous. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more, but I don't agree with you that, you know, it's because they're spreading antibiotic resistance. What they are doing is minimizing or reducing, not minimizing, but reducing the antibiotics that are out there that people come in contact with every day. And that is a problem. We know, um, and this is a, a, a separate topic, but the hygiene hypothesis is a hypothesis that actually people need to be exposed to viruses and, and, and uh, bacteria uh, because that actually regulates the immune yep. system. Yep. And it's especially important in young kids. We should not over-clean ourselves and sterilize every time you touch a baby, wash your hands before you do it. That's a bad thing, right? I mean, we were raised on farms and in the savanna where we were coming in contact with, with uh, bacteria. And we know that kids who don't actually see a lot of viruses and bacteria as they're growing up uh, are more likely to have allergies, autoimmune diseases, develop things like um, a multiple sclerosis. So yeah. that's my problem with the hand sanitizers and uh, stuff. Uh, it's not because they breed antibiotic resistance, but they do create the situation where you're not seeing enough bacteria and viruses, ironically enough. I mean, and I think we, we have... Uh, I don't know, for, for a long time said, you know, bacteria, bad, they kill us, we, we need to fight them. That's how antibiotics and the overprescribing antibiotics happen. Yep. The flip side is we now know, hmm, they're not so bad. We de actually need bacteria. Uh, they're, you know, we need to be in this uh, a very complicated symbiotic relationship with them. And that's the important point. Just getting rid of them altogether is a bad idea. Brenda, thanks very much Absolutely. for the call. Great to have you on the show. Brenda, thank you. 844-WHARTON is the number to give you a call. Give us a call, 844-942-7866. It's funny, as you, you were talking about that, especially with kids, I was thinking back to myself, well, the, the oldest, one of the oldest lines that my parents used with me, and now I use it with my kids, is remember, you, what is it? You you feed a cold and you starve a fever. It doesn't. You don't say Medicaid. There's no Medicaid in in any part of that in whatsoever. So we've had this you know old line going around for hundred right, of right, years. Right, right, Yet somehow we've got it in, you know in our heads to medicate it all the time. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think you know antibiotics are miracle drugs, and that you know that's the way we think of it. Uh, the fact that we actually have to also look at bacteria as not just our enemy, but also our friend, yeah. that's, I think, a change in perception that we need to have. How, how significant, though, is having that viewpoint on it, that there is a level of bacteria that is beneficial 
to the process because you said it does work with the body and the immune system and, and regulates things. So I think in, in two areas we've seen this very clearly. One is, as we mentioned in the hygiene hypothesis, exposing kids early on to viruses and bacteria, very important. And the second is the notion of having the right bacteria in your microbiome, in your guts, is very important to yeah. you know not developing diabetes, getting the right nutrition, uh, um, et cetera. Uh, even fighting uh, serious uh, intestinal infections. So we have seen in at least two areas where having the right viruses and bacteria exposure is very mm -hmm. important to human health. I think that's uh, a, a mindset that we need to get uh, much more prevalently in the public. I'm pretty confident over the next 20 years it'll happen. What I really need think we need is over the next two years it has to happen. What do you think is, is more possible, at least in the short term on this? Is it more possible that we will see the government say, hey, listen, if you want to be part of Medicare, you need to start doing the, 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 the medical records checkups? Or do you think, and I'm guessing I know the answer to this question, do you think we will see some of the pharma companies understand the potential issue and the need to develop more potential antibiotics? Um, well, I think we're having a little bit of both, but okay. I, I look, it is one of these things where, you know, making it a, 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 um, a requirement of participating in uh, Medicare that you have this stewardship program, I think that actually is something that can happen, and I'm hoping the new administration will do it. The flip side is uh, there are some drug companies going into more antibiotic production. There was a, a big biotech company bought by uh, for 7 or $8 billion a few years ago by, I think, Merck. Yeah. Um, but uh, as I said, 37, even if we went up to 50 or 60 antibiotics in development, that's far short of the hundreds yeah. we need in development um, and, and getting approval. But from the business perspective, the way that, that the medical community is changing and we're seeing jobs being added month after month after month, Putting that type of a program in and, you know, kind of across the United States, and you'd certainly have the people to be able to run that and monitor it. Well, again, I think, uh, I think we clearly have the capacity. We clearly have the brains. It would be a boon to the biotech industry yeah. uh, if we had these kind of prizes and they could uh, work at developing uh, solutions. Um, and I, you know, again, I think it the current system isn't working. Yep. So we need yep. an alternative. And unless someone comes up with a really bright alternative, uh, I think uh, we're it's a serious problem. Great to have you here. Thank Great. you very much Thank for you. coming in. Lovely. Do Dr. Zico Manuel, who is the uh, chair of the Medical Ethics and Health Policy Department here at the University of Pennsylvania. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.